Hey, Mike, you know what I was thinking? What were you thinking? I was thinking we should try and get the word out a little more, and the best way to do that is going to be, I think, Sacred Cows Podcast business cards. Well, it seems like we're on the same thought train with that, because I already got some made. Here, oh, really? take a look. Oh, wow. Would you look at that? It's it's beautiful. The crispness of the perfect right angles, the... Uh, tactile sensation uh, of the 65-pound cardstock. It's um, rigid yet pliable with an unassumingly okay? elegant champagne finish. No, no, really. The, the sheen, you're, you're sweating. the relief of this lithography. It's, it's the most aesthetically pleasing business card since they were popularized in the 1890s. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I think I have to go. Uh, where are you going? I uh, have to go return some videotapes. In a world where the human race has nearly unlimited access to all forms of media, mankind faces its greatest enemy. I've come for vengeance. A looming threat. Can you look at that? What is that? A paralyzing choice. You have eight choices. Choose incorrectly, and I cannot be held responsible for your suffering. Is the next movie in my queue good or bad? Hey, do you guys want to watch Geely? A war that threatens our very existence. We have come to take over your world. And it will be fought over. Cows. One podcast dares to make sense of it all, so you don't have to. This is the Sacred Cows Podcast. And now, welcome your hosts. Hey everyone, it's Pete. Hi, this is Mike. Thanks, Thanks, disembodied voice guy. So today we're talking about American Psycho. It's a movie from the year 2000, but it takes place in the 1980s. Say, uh, disembodied voice guy, what were you doing in the 80s? Mostly gun running in Central America for the Kipper. Hmm. I never got caught. (laughs) Would it be weird if we asked him to do his voice parts remotely from now on? Um, we can't renegotiate his contract yet, um... He's union. Mm. So, welcome to the Sacred Cow Podcast, where we talk about movies that you probably have some kind of nostalgia for. That's right. Movies, remember, that are 10 years old or more that you have an experience with, typically from your childhood, that just uh, gives you that nostalgic feeling. And today's movie is going to be a little bit new for us. Uh, Instead of going with a movie that we've both seen before and both have nostalgia for, we're just going with a movie that I've seen before, because let's face it, this is all about me. That is what he constantly tells me, and I thought it was interesting seeing a movie for the first time to talk about it on this podcast. I think it's an interesting perspective that we're going to enjoy. I agree, so let's just jump into, you know, more about the movie. Sure thing. Uh, Well, this is a film directed by Mary Heron, a lower-profile director than the previous two episodes uh, that we talked about. Uh, She's a Canadian director, and you may not have ever heard of her before. She's made a couple of other movies. Uh, I shot Andy Warhol and the notorious Betty Page, but I have a feeling that this is probably her masterpiece here. 
I know that's the only movie of hers I've ever seen, to be honest with you. Right, right. And uh, and this movie kind of had a rotating cast of characters that were producing and starring in it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Mike? Uh, when Mary Heron got involved, she wasn't the first choice for a director, um, but they ended up with her, at least for a while. And it ended up kind of uh, being a weird uh, a saga. So when Heron was involved, she immediately saw Christian Bale as the lead character. And... Uh, her and Bale worked on things, and then the studio got involved and said, well, Christian Bale's not famous enough. I think we need to get somebody in there that's a bigger name. Now, now is it true that Christian Bale had really just been known for his child acting work before this? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the, the part that put him on the map. So they ended up uh, approaching um, first Johnny Depp, who turned it down, and then they approached Leonardo DiCaprio and eventually ended up signing him. Now, DiCaprio wanted his own choice of director. So he ended up trying to bring in Martin Scorsese. Now, Martin Scorsese had some ideas for it, and it would have been a very different movie, um, but with the script that was there for that one, the movie would have ended with a uh, singing and dancing scene on the top of the World Trade Center. be a very different film. Eventually, DiCaprio said, eh, I think I'm going to go do the beach instead. And uh, Scorsese followed. So the movie ended up going back to Mary Heron. And uh, Christian Bale was not cast immediately, although it was Mary Heron's first choice yet. The studio tried to approach, approach Ewan McGregor. Uh, Ewan McGregor is friends with Christian Bale. And Christian Bale asked him not to take the part because he knew it would get back to him. And then, you know, he could play the part that he'd been basically wanting to do for a while. Now, the condition that the studio had for Mary Heron and Bale was that it had to be a less than $10 million film, which they actually did quite nicely. The budget of the film was only $7 million. I think Bale basically didn't get paid for it, but I can't find any information about that. And uh, they made a tidy $34.3 million at the box office, which means they just got under five times return on their investment. So everybody was pretty happy with it, along with the reviews. Now, uh, of course, Christian Bale did his usual amount of preparation for the role, uh, working out like crazy. That's right. He worked out a ton to get the physique needed to play Bateman. Yeah, not Batman, but Bateman. And he had a little trouble getting into the character. Uh, it sounds like he channeled Nicolas Cage in his performance in Vampire's Kiss and also Tom Cruise just being Tom Cruise out and about town. Uh, I also think he was kind of channeling Brent Spiner when he goes into his uh, long-winded, dispassionate uh, uh, rants about the minutiae of his day and detail and all that kind of thing. Well, so. he never mentioned Brent Spiner in, in any interviews, but I guess I can see where you would think that. It might have been the hair, too. I'm not sure. Might have been. Might have. Uh, can you imagine just Data as a, as a, as a serial killer? Uh, well, yes, I can. Uh, data with a malfunctioning emotions chip. Oh, yeah, you're right. For sure. Okay. Or hmm. more. <laughs> now we're getting in some geeky-ass geek shit. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, uh, you have seen this movie before this viewing, so what kind of history or baggage do you have with this film? Uh, well, I actually didn't see it till college, which still falls in the over 10 years ago, yeah, I'm old, um, timeline. But uh, it turned out that um, I had rented the movie when I was in college, and I didn't actually watch it when I rented it the first time. 
but my sister watched it and then she picked it up and she just thought it was the best movie ever. And now my sister is like uh, 16 years old. And uh, so she kept selling me on it and selling me on it. And finally, you know, a couple weeks later, I had sat down and watched it and I agreed with her. It was like one of the better movies I had ever seen, uh, you know, at the end of my college career. And then I've kind of watched it three or four times since then. And I just like, yeah, I thought it was a well-made movie. I thought it was uh, really thought-provoking, and uh, you know, like all things like that, uh, uh, very few movies do I watch every year. I kind of put that one away and and haven't really watched it uh, yeah, probably about six years. So it was nice to come back now and, and take a look at it. Since you don't have any history with it except hearing about it, that's right. That's what, right. What were what were your thoughts that it was going to be before you came in, based on marketing or whatever people told you? Okay, so when this movie came out, it wasn't on my radar at all. It just kind of came and went without making too much noise, uh, not even a blip for me. I thought I'd heard of it. I thought perhaps this must just be like a remake of Psycho, uh, which it isn't, although the character's name is Bateman, so it's a bit of a send-up. But I heard from my wife that I probably wouldn't like this movie being too cerebral for me and all that. I guess that means not enough explosions or something like that, which I think she's got me mischaracterized. So I Not didn't, enough Arnold? Not enough Arnold. So I'm not so sure what I thought. I wasn't necessarily like, yay, I get to watch American Psycho now. But I put it in, and by that I meant, I mean, I clicked play on Netflix and I watched it, and I have to say it was a very thoughtfully put-together movie. Good script, definitely. The direction is competent. The acting is quite good uh, by all the different characters, incidental or main. And it, uh, I had no expectations for it to defy, so I just watched it for what it was. And in the end, I found it enjoyable. Did you watch the uh, rated or unrated version? Well, I just don't know about that. It's whatever was available on Netflix. They do tend to show the unrated stuff, I think. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, um, you know, since you just talked about your, your viewing experience, I guess I'll talk about mine. I uh, ended up watching the DVD edition that I had from the, you know, 2000s, um, which, you know, was really good quality copy anyway. It's not Blu-ray. I did not own the unrated edition. So mine, what I have. my version probably had the 18 seconds that they had to cut from the theatrical release. Right, 18 seconds in a sex scene. Mm -hmm. In order to get the R rating. Okay, well, uh, but yeah, the same experience. Uh, it was one of those that, um, for me, watching this time, I knew my, my wife wasn't going to like. Um, well, she doesn't like excessive violence. Uh, maybe, well, it's not worse than like Breaking Bad, so I probably could have got her to watch it, but eh, it was still fun. Well, you know, there's street violence and then there's like psychotic violence, so true. It's a bit different. Is there any baggage you brought in? I mean, uh, I suppose you already talked about that. I did, and you know, really, my mind was totally unclouded by anything nostalgia, expectations, anything at all. It was just, it was a, uh, I had no idea what to expect, and so I got exactly what I expected. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I didn't have any negative baggage. Uh, I, I just thought that it was going to be, uh, you know, that maybe maybe it was still nostalgic in like, a, is it still a good movie? But that's what we're here for. That's right. That it will be the final verdict at the end of this podcast. Okay, so now's the point where we just need to tell you, if you have not watched the movie, 
Get up, stop listening to this podcast, press pause. We're still going to be here when you get back. Press pause, go press, press play on Netflix or your Blu-ray player. Or DVD, whatever you have on hand. Or your VHS, if you will, perhaps Betamax. If you have a Betamax copy of the movie, we would be interested in hearing from you and would definitely feature your craziness on the podcast. That's right. Do not return that videotape. Take a picture. Okay. So, uh, with that, go watch the movie. And we'll see you in a minute. So let's talk about everything going on in this movie. There's a lot going on in this movie. Yes, there is. But one of the things that I noticed about American Psycho is that it is stylized and you can tell that it has a slight sense of humor from the very start. I mean, from the title screen, you see what you think is a drop of blood onto a plate. And it turns out to be this exquisite dessert that is being made at a fancy restaurant, and you're like, ha-ha, okay, right. what's going on here? That's the very first thing you notice about the movie is that we are thrust into a decadent culture of basically greed and excess. It's the 1980s in New York City. 87, exactly. 87, 1987, New York City, Wall Street to be more specific, and our cast of characters is a bunch of young handsome fabulously wealthy people who are just living the high life essentially and and you see them and they all look kind of the same like all of the guys especially have the same slicked back haircut Mm -hmm. they're all wearing the same fancy suits yes they're just a bunch of anonymous handsome 80s businessmen to the point that they don't even really recognize each other. They often mix up who they're talking to, and that kind of becomes a running thing throughout the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, That and they're all... The guys, especially, are just very misogynistic. That's right. They, uh, Including our main character, Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale, who seems to really delight in getting into the fine details of just mundane tasks as he goes throughout his day. We're very quickly treated to a monologue about what kind of facial treatments he gives himself first thing in the morning every day. And it, it's, it's, it's so detailed that it's meant to be humorous, I believe, but it also kind of shows what a, a, a calculating character he is. Oh, calculating for sure. And also, like, how hollow the existence is of him and the people in his world. Because you can look at what he's doing and say, okay, every guy at that table is doing the same is thing. doing the same thing. Probably every lady, you know, in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they start talking about their relationships, that those are all completely superficial face value everybody's so selfishly involved in themselves that they don't even really hear what the other person is saying and they really seem to just delight in these really mundane boring little personal tasks that they make their days up with right i'm dating yeah i'm dating her because it's convenient and it works with my social and business schedule Mm -hmm. and she's dating me for the same reasons but i'm screwing this other person next to me Mm -hmm. because the sex works with that person's schedule and stuff like that. And my girlfriend is screwing this guy and I really don't seem to care too much about that fact. Nope. And it's okay because he's the coolest guy I know. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, and 
all of the stuff and then just the amount of drugs in the movie. That's right. Uh, uh, the, the characters really are, apart from our main character, very, very one-dimensional and uh, just caricatures. There's, of course, the the dispassionate, uh, druggy woman that, uh, that Patrick Bateman is, is dating on the side. There's his kind of domineering but still very detached uh, fiancé. There's a bunch of, you know, surface level businessmen. There's a high class hooker. This woman is a high class hooker. This woman is a low class hooker. And everyone in the background is just an 80s person. So, right. I yeah. Mean, but that's not important to, to the story or, or the dialogue that unfolds. Yeah. So I think we've talked a, a, quite a bit about the uh, particulars of the environment that the movie takes place in. When you get into to Patrick himself... He's very much saying that he is only the surface person, but that's not good enough for him, which is what this whole unraveling that he has starts to be about, I think. He recognizes the fact that there's a a deeper part of his persona that... He's just covering up with this sheer, this uh, veneer of normalcy, which is what he's trying to do. He's trying to put up a, a facade of being just your normal old Wall Street business guy. But there's definitely something much deeper going on. Anytime that he he sees something that is uh, that makes him look lesser than anybody else, it's this little rage thing, mm-hmm. it, you know, um, that starts bubbling up on the surface, and. He doesn't want to admit it exists, but he also acknowledges it exists. He just doesn't know how to deal with it because right. the world that he's created for himself isn't able to cope with that. That's right. He's he's very narrow range of emotions. In fact, at one point in the movie, I believe he says his only two emotions are what greed and anger or something yes. like that. It's how he reacts to everything. Greed drives him. Anger is how he reacts when he doesn't get what he wants, which is to be the best, essentially. We also have some some other uh, important characters uh, I'll just kind of go through. Um, uh, Paul Allen, which is played by Jared Leto, which is sort of his rival at the company. Uh, again, if you take and you know would stand these two side by side, they have the same glasses, the same haircut, the same suits and stuff. But the character of Paul Allen is able to get into clubs and things that Patrick Bateman cannot. Right. It's just this minor little one-upsmanship that goes on, and and, uh, Bateman always seems to come out just one rung down the ladder below this guy. Drives him nuts. Yep. And then, uh, see, other important characters are uh, his girlfriend, Ellie, who is played by Reese Witherspoon. Uh, She's the one who is constantly prattling on about their future wedding plans, uh, not really hearing anything that Christian Bale, I'm sorry, Patrick Bateman has to say, but they don't really seem like they have a whole lot in common anyway, other than just being a couple of socialites that are tenuously connected to each other. No, it's just it's just convenient. Uh, and then uh, a couple other important characters. Um, the character of uh, Detective Kimball is played by Willem Dafoe. Reprising his role from Boondock Saints. Just kidding. But he is playing a detective again. Same year. He must have been pigeonholed that yeah, year. Yeah, I think so. They were just like, hey, this guy plays a good detective. And then we have Chloe Figney playing his very subservient secretary, Jean, who's probably the only one in Patrick Bateman's world that actually has true feelings and doesn't seem to be very concerned at all with the whole 
where am I in social standing and everything that everybody else around her is concerned with? She's the only non-one-dimensional character. Right. She doesn't put on any airs. She's just, she's, well, white-collar, but more blue-collar than the rest. Definitely a real person, and I think he recognizes and admires that. Well, before we dive into the psyche of this psycho, let's just do a short plot summary, because it's a good idea to do. That's right. So... It starts innocently enough. We're following a, uh, a businessman from Wall Street through his day. It's just a bunch of boring little things that he does to get ready in the morning, that kind of thing. Things get a little weird when he starts verbally expressing homicidal thoughts and tendencies, as it were. But uh, uh, things get even worse, as we mentioned before. The jealous man uh, constantly being one-upped by his uh, business rivals uh, decides he's going to indulge himself on some of these homicidal tendencies. Right, so uh, he starts out by killing his business rival, um, sort of covering up the murder. Uh, and then eventually he starts uh, killing more and more people. Mm -hmm. uh, all under the cover of different identities, because remember, his business associates don't really have a good handle on the names of the people that they work with. They are all very similar in appearance. So when he lures Paul Allen out to dinner, he's doing so under the name that Paul Allen thinks that he is, which is just one of his business associates. So his alibis are kind of built into the fact that other people always think that he's someone else. Eventually, he starts luring in hookers and killing hobos and uh, you know, not these. We're not talking about these necessarily in the right order, but no, that, and they're not pattern killings. He just sort of like has these impulses, like uh, the the scene with the hobo. At first, he wants to give him some money to help him buy some food and then help him get a job, but then on a dime, he turns around and just decides that he's going to kill him instead. And so, through the rest of the movie, we watch him uh, get pursued by this detective, um, who's sort of starting to piece it together. We think. But then he starts getting frustrated because he can't get caught. That's right. He, uh, he starts to feel some remorse, whether it's just because he feels like his back is against the wall. He begins to uh, have uh, sensations or feelings about being pursued by law enforcement more and more closely uh, to the point where he, he eventually calls his lawyer and confesses to all the crimes, especially the killing of Paul Allen, which is what's the big investigation with the NYPD. Right, and, and of course, at the uh, end of the movie, the, the, the biggest twist is that uh, because they're all unrecognizable, because they're all the same kind of person, his lawyer doesn't believe him. Everything he said to his lawyer is sort of just laughed off. Paul Allen may or may not actually be dead because nobody actually knows who Paul Allen really is. Nobody really knows who Patrick Bateman is. So we know who Patrick Bateman is. And at the end of the movie, he has no catharsis. He has no lesson learned. He just wants to be caught and have to face, you know, a, a real true feeling. But it never happens for him. And that's where the movie ends. That's well, the plot. And it's because the real ambiguity of the movie as to whether or not any of these homicides these killings actually happened or not we see them all take place on the screen but at the end we're like well did they actually happen or was it all in his mind there's a lot of different theories uh, combinations of things that could have happened right so jumping into to breaking this down really the every part of the movie is important to build us a picture of patrick bateman um, because you're watching the movie from his point of view but 
the last third of the movie is probably the part where you see it in the most Patrick Bateman way when he starts to uh, be showing that he's like an unreliable camera in the mm-hmm. movie. He gets to the the ATM and there's there's a you know, put the kitten in, or whatever it actually says. Right, right. The ATM message is saying, put the kitten in, or something like that. Instead, he uh, pulls out a gun and threatens to shoot the kitten. Right, and then he ends up shooting an old lady, and then he ends up running into the, a building. The cops are on the scene immediately. Yeah, uh, he runs into a building to get away from them. It's the wrong building, so he shoots the security guard there, who mm-hmm. think he's a Mr. Smith, which is probably another guy that looks just like him. Right. He exactly. runs out. He gets by some other cop cars and uh, he shoots the cop car and it explodes. You know, almost immediately, uh, he looks at the gun like uh, that shouldn't have happened. And right, being that he's an extremely logical person, you can imagine like cerebrally, he's like, um, mm-hmm. "Is anything I'm seeing real, or, or what's going on here?" He keeps running and goes into the other building, which is the building he's looking for, mm-hmm. to con- confess all his sins uh, to the lawyer, who doesn't end up believing him. But right, he's like, hey, great joke on my answering machine last night. And it's like, ugh. What this really brings back is the three theories that fans have. Did he kill anybody? Right. Did he kill just Paul Allen? Did he kill everybody but Paul Allen? Or did he kill everybody? And he just gets away scot-free based on misidentification essentially now it's meant to be ambiguous because you can kind of take away uh what you want out of it Mm -hmm. and brett easton ellis is the novelist who wrote the the 1991 novel right american Uh, psycho basically said that um when he wrote the novel the character was it was meant to be ambiguous to everybody including him um you know he obviously did some of the murders but which ones? We're not sure. If any, really. I mean, yeah. it was meant to be wholly and completely ambiguous. There is no answer in mind, uh, in the, the mind of the novelist. So I think I think uh, the movie pulls that off spectacularly. Right. That, that was his major beef with the movie. He thought it was unnecessary. He thought the medium di- wasn't conducive to an unreliable narrator. But, Mike, your comment about the unreliable cameraman, I think, sums up nicely just how successful it was to capture the ambiguity of the book. Uh, what favorite scenes do you have, Pete, from this movie? I mean, there's a lot of humor and stuff in it, too, not just, you know, grotesqueness. In fact, I would say... The grotesqueness is almost secondary. Right, and in some cases it can even uh, enhance the humor in some ways. This, of course, humor, I love humor, uh, produced some of the more memorable moments for me. Some of them are outright funny. Some of them are just kind of like ironically like, you know, chuckle worthy. I don't know. When I realized that this was going to be a good movie was when I started to hear some of the dialogue the dispassionate discourse about what facial scrubs he uses mm-hmm. in the morning. I use a facial balm with almost no alcohol because that will leave you wrinkled and old looking. Uh, the very detached and cold uh, speech at the dinner table about how the 1% needs to help humanity to help themselves by bettering all of mankind. Uh <laughs> it's just like oh man this is like a cold calm rant about happiness and sunshine it's just wonderful a little bit of dialogue there so it was probably moments like that that i liked the best uh what about you mike i really 
really, 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 really like the business card scene. I oh, think yeah. that is probably one of the most iconic scenes from the movie where Patrick Bateman's like, hey, I got this business card. It's great. This is the stack of paper. It's ivory cream colored. Uh, look at the embossing. That's and then, right. Like three other guys have business cards that are better than his. And then finally his nemesis, Paul Allen, has the best business card. And mm-hmm. he starts getting the beads of sweat on his face and... And that's what sends him over the edge. Juxtaposed, his his reaction to the business cards, juxtaposed by the fact that Patrick usually has pornography just playing in the background of his apartment and absolutely seems to not even notice it. It's just background noise there. So it's really the little yuppie things that get him off in life as opposed to, you know, <laughs> the more traditional methods. Oh, God, yes. I loved the, like, long speeches just about all of the, his feelings on Phil Collins, Huey Lewis on the news and Whitney Houston mm-hmm. that whatever the situation that's happening it doesn't really match what he's doing and no. obviously the one got well most of the time he's planning violence he's it's (laughs) it's usually a three to five minute speech about a musical artist during a murder prep uh going on behind the back of the victim oh god yes and And it's really funny the scene where he kills paul allen is probably uh yeah one of the most (laughs) it is one of the most memed things on the internet both like animated gifs and things like that but this whole movie this whole movie is such a part of internet culture now. Oh yeah, and that that would be some of the only exposure I've had to things like you said the Paul Allen theme. It's been uh, clip art, clip art memed. It's been you know uh, caption memed. It's really something that's become culturally culturally significant outside of the scope of this movie. Well, and I think the ultimate expression of it is um, uh, Huey Lewis and Weird Al. Uh, I'll just do a little background on this. Huey Lewis actually thought, okay, there's a movie being made. Um, one of my songs is going to be in it, and I think that's fine. And then he had no idea what American Psycho was about. Mm-hmm. And then when he heard it was very violent, he said, oh, no, 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 you cannot sell our song on the soundtrack, um, but it can, it, it can, fine, it can stay in the movie. You already did that. Then it turns out he watched it uh, in the last couple of years, and he actually thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. And then he made a uh, Funny or Die video with Weird Al Yankovic, recreating the Paul Allen murder scene with Weird Al being the Paul Allen character and him being the Patrick Bateman character and them watching American Psycho. Uh, So you probably need to go watch that if you haven't. It's probably one of the most uh, meta-entertaining things I've seen in a long, long time. That is awesome. I am going to watch that myself. Huh. You know, I was thinking about... uh Something we forgot to mention, we kind of alluded to it, but there is a sex scene in this movie, one of the rare non-murder scenes, where Patrick hires a high-class hooker and a low-class hooker, and this is the scene where they needed to cut 18 seconds out in order to get their R rating down from NC-17. But it's just great. It really... uh, uh, he's got the Adonis complex, obviously. It really shows his narcissism there. Having the three-way, he's like all flexing his muscles while looking at the, the video camera and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's meant to be funny. It's it's fantastically humorous. It's not a, yeah, the, 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 the scene there is, is it definitely meant to be funny because the sex that he's recording, he's not recording, you know, 
the girls. The girls is at all. recording his, Him, his himself. Gun, it's, the gun show. Yeah. He's turned on for by himself. Uh huh. So not the girls. Kissing his muscles and stuff. Oh like God, that. yes. Yeah, and the girls are just kind of rolling their eyes. They're like, whatever. It's a living. Uh huh. Yeah, and there's some other uh, humorous things that some of the other characters say. One of my uh, favorite things I had to watch twice was just in the Coke bar when they're talking about, oh man, the the Coke is not really that uh that good it's just basic and it's he's like oh just sweetener. take just take some more it'll be fine mm-hmm. and then like the, the the other guy is uh, in the next booth from them and is getting mad and his friend is like just starts yelling over the booth and, and stuff like that and then when it's uh, finally over and he's like sorry dude must be the steroids mm-hmm. you know <laughs> could you keep it down we're trying to do drugs in here yeah <laughs> <laughs> the guy's like gonna kill him oh yeah and like the i i also like the the crossword puzzle when he's that he's doing in his uh little office there on his couch and it like there's all these you can see some of the clues it's like a new york times crossword puzzle but everything he's type writing in are meat meat bones meat, meat bones bone, meat yeah bones. yeah right. yeah so, so like can i help you with your crossword puzzle nah can we talk about the rather nuanced nature of the identity miss the misidentifications of of the people in the wall street world essentially sure it's important from the standpoint of the investigation that the detective played by Willem Dafoe is is running, because like we said before, Paul Allen thinks that Patrick Bateman is somebody else, and so he's able to invite him out to dinner as somebody else. But then when his when Paul Allen's date book says he's going out to dinner with not Patrick Bateman, the detective follows up with that guy and says, no, he was doing something else. Patrick Bateman ends up having an alibi for that night because three of his other friends think that they went out to dinner with him. Right. Uh, Obviously a fourth unknown person, but they were like, oh, that's Patrick Bateman. And so they're all out to dinner. He's got an alibi, but his story's not matching up with the detective. The final mismatch of identity, of course, is that Paul Allen is presumed alive because the lawyer he calls to to confess the murder of Paul Allen uh, went out to dinner with him in London, apparently. Whether or not that was Paul Allen, we don't know. No, it could just be another guy with the same similar dress style and everything like that. Right, so. and the lawyer says, oh, that, that, that guy is Paul Allen. The thing I'm not so sure about is that the ruse only seems, or the, the identity misidentification only seems to really work with uh, Patrick Bateman because he's playing along with it now. To what extent do all of these? To what extent are all of these businessmen just playing along with these misidentifications? Like, oh, I'm Bob, but somebody just called me Steve. Well, I'll go along with that, you know. Well, and, and yeah. Really, to, to, to what point are all of these people have a similar psychological, uh, you know, mindset? Well, and the other thing that really sort of um, uh, is a is a is a mind bender is the whole uh, scene where. Uh, Bateman comes back to the apartment where he had all the rotting corpses of all the people he's killed, uh, minus the hobos, because he must not just take them back. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we clearly saw from the uh, low-class hooker's perspective as she was running away in the previous uh, uh, set of scenes that there's, there were tons bodies, bodies there, it. and mm-hmm. it was talking, there was graffiti there, and all of a sudden he comes back the next day and it's all gone. Now, uh, you could take it this as you know this the whole killing stuff was in his mind, or you could take this that basically the 
people that owned the apartment said, okay, this is a high-class apartment. It overlooks Central Park. It's worth a lot of money. Forget it. Let's get rid of all these bodies, get rid of this graffiti, paint everything white, and just be done with it, you know, because we're not going to be able to let the police sit in here for six months and investigate uh, and not rent it out because we want, you know, uh, 20000 a month or whatever ridiculous, you know, Wall Street apartment cost in, in the excessive 80s. Right. The the movie and the source material, the book, are supposed to shine a light, I guess, in a satirical fashion on the, the greed of the 80s, the just blind greed with no scruples and what kind of monsters could spawn from that kind of an environment and it's not just necessarily limited to patrick bateman it could be all of his friends the realtor like you said just being unscrupulous how are we going to get the most money that kind of thing so the 80s wasn't just big hair and fishnet gloves you know it was also a lot of drugs and greed and and all that kind of stuff you know had a dark side oh yeah and it was good for uh, a very small group of people and not good for a very large group of others and we really don't see these others in that movie except uh, represented in the murdered hobo and the you know unassuming little secretary who seems to have a good heart still but is surrounded by monsters any final thoughts before we get to the decision no i just thought it was a well put together movie i i found it very thought-provoking while watching it and even more so upon reflection so uh can't wait to talk about the verdict all right let's uh get to that verdict then all right mike as somebody who is experienced with this movie why don't you tell us if it held up to your expectations if it is just as good of a movie as you thought it was back in the day yes Yes, I think it's sacred. And the reason I think it's sacred is uh, it is such an examination of uh, that 80s kind of culture where you're putting materialism, you're putting consumerism, you're putting just um, shallow, you know, uh, value of stuff over people and substance and, you know, saving face surface stuff first. As a criticism of that in the 80s, it is perfect. That said, I think... You can look at what's going on in this movie and see a lot of that still happening today. You know, when you look at a lot of the politics and, and, and problems and the way that people are suggesting to fix things, um, you wonder if they're coming at it from more of a, of a shallow angle. And that whole speech that Patrick Bateman did that was just, you know, BS that he was sort of like, ha ha ha, we need to save the world. You know, it's all relevant still to this day, even though we're looking at a time now long past. Uh, what do you think, Pete? But in, in some ways, not so long past. Well, uh, again, this is my first viewing of the movie. All nostalgia aside, this movie, it was really good, I thought. It had some built-in nostalgia value, because even though I was seeing it for the first time, it's a movie lambasting a time period that I have lots of experience with the 1980s. I have lots of experience uh, making fun of this time period. And hey, I loved this movie because it made fun of it for me. I didn't even have to worry about that aspect. Apart from that, the writing was solid. The plot was fantastic. The twist, 
uh, at the end was somewhat surprising, but even at that point, it has a lot of rewatchability value, I believe, as I go back and I look for Easter eggs now that I've seen it once, and as I try to figure out which of the theories about... Uh, the nature of what actually happened in this movie is real what i feel about that i will definitely be watching this again i feel that this movie is sacred uh it's a 15 year old movie i still think it's uh it's really great so that's my verdict mike all right so we are unanimous it is uh, bovinus sanctorum that's right okay so uh on to final notes another successful episode so what's the score right now mike well we've got two movies that we've said are sacred and one movie that we said is not although there was a little bit of fan feedback that disagrees on that second one well you can't uh, please everybody all the time right nope it's our show sorry guys (laughs) haha no we still love you anyway um glad we decided what we decided on american psycho Mm -hmm. i'm definitely going to watch it again and i think i'm going to try to get my wife to watch it too yeah right you know this wasn't the most mainstream uh movie that we picked but it's definitely a hidden classic for all of those who have not watched it so i would suggest well, you already did because you're listening to our damn podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about us. Uh, and speaking of telling your friends about us, um, please do. We also would like to get in touch with you. So we want to hear from you on Twitter. We want to hear from you on the web. We want to hear from you on iTunes reviews, and we're going to tell you how to do it. You can find us on Twitter with our account at Sacred Cows Pod. That's at Sacred Cows Pod. Uh, you can get in touch with us on email by emailing sacredcows at herooftheweb.com. That's sacredcows at sign herooftheweb.com. It's really easy. And finally, we really welcome your iTunes reviews. We would really love your five-star iTunes reviews, especially because that helps people find us more as we go up into the rankings. I mean, feel free to lambast us. Tell us how horrible we are and horrible people, whatever. You might be right. Who knows? Just give us those five-star reviews. So with that, I think we're going to have to say goodbye. Signing off. Uh, You know, we should probably go return our videotapes at this point. Yeah, maybe we should return uh, Star Wars. I can't believe, I think I'm probably about 22 years overdue with that Star Wars thing. Maybe we could do Star Wars next time. I was going to say, why are you still renting Star Wars? Surely you own it. I probably do, but, you know. at this point, you do own it uh, if it's been 22 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should just review this old copy and see how it holds up, you know, know. for the next podcast. Yeah, sure. Star Wars next time. All right. like a solid plan. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Hello, and welcome to the Sacred Cows Podcast. It is me, Igor, here to tell you about the Master the Count. I, uh, I I thought it was Robin Williams as the undead thing when he's explaining you can't bring shit back from dead. No, it's about me, the Count. I'm here to talk to you about... uh, Counting, I'm sure. uh, No. (laughs) No. Real estate. Uh, ah, ah, ah. Hexagonal real estate. One, one hexagonal house. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Two, two hexagonal house. That's, ah, that's ah, some ah. weird wild stuff. Yeah. What's up, Jack? 
Rutabaga.